Season 1, Episode 11, Paris is Burning. Lorelai and Max are navigating their new, blossoming relationship. Everything's going splendidly, until things get complicated. Can they survive the test? Only time will tell. Hello, I'm your host, Rachel Foss. With me today is one of my favorite returning guests, Jenny. Hi, Jenny. Hi, thanks for having me on again. I'm happy to be here. Thanks again for being here. Today is January 9th, 2021, and we've had not a great start to our new year. So I'm happy to see a friendly face that I like so much. We had domestic terrorists storming our capital this week. It was pretty horrible and a pretty awful week. I mean, I'm still in shock. So I'm happy to be here with you where we can talk about things like Gilmore Girls that I can wrap my head around. (laughs) And Gilmore Girls makes us happy. So that's going to be good. Well, let's talk about some good things going on. Have you been watching anything fun this week? It's the start of a new year. Do you have a new show or anything? Well, I don't know if you would describe this as fun, but I've really enjoyed it. I watched the third season of Leia Remini, Scientology, The Aftermath. And it's I mean, it's heavy. It's it's a lot of a lot of sad topics, but it is also really inspiring. I have no idea who that is or what that is, but I'm glad you've been enjoying it. I've been watching the show Miranda, the British show starring and created by Miranda Hart. I think she's one of the funniest people on the planet. I've seen it before, but it's been a long time since I've watched that show. And my best friend got me into it because she was like, you have to watch the show Miranda because you are Miranda and Miranda Hart is you. But then I watched it and I was like, oh, yeah, that is. She even kind of, we even kind of look similar. Like if she had freckles. I've heard of it. I, and a lot of people have told me to watch it. It's been really helpful because A, it's hilarious. I mean, it's seriously one of the funniest shows of all time. And B, because I've really been missing Ryan lately. And Tom Ellis is the love interest. And uh, watching Tom Ellis every day has been helping. I bet Tom Ellis every day does help. A Tom Ellis a day keeps the heart sadness away. (laughs) Women are allowed at least a little bit of that in the world. Oh, yeah. Well, now that we've got that out of our system, (laughs) are you ready to start the show? I am ready. Let's get into it. Let's go. And this is Season 1, Episode 11, Paris is Burning, written by Amy Sherman Palladino and Joan Binderweiss, and aired on January 11th, 2001. We're finally in 2001. We're in a new year. Oh, my gosh. So literally 10 years ago. No, literally 20 years ago, honey. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. I'm ancient. (laughs) I'm a million years old. I am 36. That's right. (laughs) Do you need a moment to take a deep breath? I mean, <laughs> I <couldn't> forget <laughs> how old I really am and how much time has actually passed in my existence. It's okay. Hey, we're in this together. Before we get into the episode, I want to talk about the title, and because I realize I never really talk about the title, but almost all of the episode titles so far have been in reference to something else, like the Deer Hunters and etc. And Paris is Burning is another one. So I figured, since this one is so blatantly in reference to something else, I figured I'd finally start talking about the title. So again, this episode is titled Paris is Burning. This is in reference to the 1990 documentary, Paris is Burning, 
which is about the drag culture of New York City. And what that has to do with this episode, I don't think anything. I think it was just because Paris Geller has a lot to do with this episode. And that is a movie that I'm assuming Amy likes. I've seen it. And actually, that's the root of um, the term Yas Queen culture. That's where it came from. So then if you hear people using it, there is like some question as to whether they're actually appropriating drag culture by using Yas Queen when that actually came from, you know, the roots of very early American drag culture. Fun fact. Interesting, because I thought it was something that was taken from black culture. Was it black drag culture yeah yes okay that makes sense then and i would highly recommend it's not long i would highly recommend anyone watch it because you learn a lot about life in new york in the 80s especially for you know gay trans people of color it's really really fascinating i'm so glad that you were here to share that well we open this episode of gilmore girls rounding the corner in front of dozy's market rory looks super cute lorelei is wearing another tragic tie-dye rhinestone teenage jersey number shirt They pass a newspaper stand and fresh fruit signs, assorted gourds. Why you would need gourds after Christmas is beyond me, but also red potatoes are only five cents. That's a pretty good deal. And speaking of, it is after Christmas, and I'm pretty sure this is supposed to be January, but it looks like freaking April. Guess what, Californians? You don't have leaves on trees in January. Come on. Are you telling me that every single person on this set has never seen anywhere outside of California before and has no idea what the hell they're doing. This is a thing that constantly bothered me, but I couldn't put my finger on it when I was first watching it. They're talking about how cold it is and that it's supposed to be freezing, and yet they always are wearing their scarves around their jackets and not actually, like, tied around their necks. Lorelai and Roy are performing a game to see who has to be the one to clean out the refrigerator. They pass by Samantha Lee's Bakery. We mentioned this in a previous episode. We see this mysterious bakery again. This bakery, of course, is not the Weston's Bakery that we will get to know in future episodes. So in the last episode where we brought this up, we concluded that Samantha Lee's might just be a bread bakery. So like bread bagels and things like that. But forget about bread. Lorelai sees puppies. They walk over to the center of the square. There's a large sign that says petfinder.org, which is not a real thing. However, petfinder.com is real and has been around since the 90s. They look at a super cute little puppy named Buttercup who was abandoned near Highway 26. But there is no Highway 26 anywhere near Connecticut. There is, however, a Route 26 that goes through California. These California riders be Californian. Man, I mean, they really just did not put very much effort into researching Connecticut or New England at all. I mean, when I think about how shows like The Office actually went around and got, like, stickers from the local radio station and put them up on the filing cabinet. And Rack talked about Indiana. They had freaking Verners. I loved watching them drink Verners because only people from certain parts of the Midwest know what that is. Also, I hope that Buttercup, the dog in real life, had a happy life because he was really cute and looked so sad. 
Luke comes up and insists that the pet finder volunteer do not let the girls have any connection to these dogs. Rory brings up Skippy the hamster, who apparently was vicious, and Lorelai was apparently abusive and negligent until she returned it to the pet store. Lorelai tries to excuse herself from this animal abuse, calling Skippy the Damien of hamsters. Lorelai is referencing the 1976 horror series, The Omen, about a little boy who is born to be the Antichrist. And there's, I think there's an Omen 2 and 3. I know that I've seen a sequel. I just can't remember if there's two or three. Well, in the next scene, we see Lorelai over at Max Medina's. She's eating out of pots and pans while Max is cleaning up because she barely touched their dinner when they were actually sitting down to eat dinner. She says that she wasn't hungry, but watching people work makes her hungry. If she didn't stop watching this old house, she'd be 500 pounds. Wait a minute. This episode wasn't written by Dan Palladino, so I'm surprised that there was a fat girl reference because that's pretty Dan Palladino-y. And this old house, I'm surprised that Amy Sherman Palladino used that reference. This old house, a PBS show about house reconstruction, which is still going on today, and is very good. If you want to see like the OG before HGTV, there was this old house. I will always hate this old house, and let me tell you why. It's not that I hate this old house, it's that I'll always be bitter about it because growing up we didn't have streaming we didn't have cable until later so there weren't kids shows on all the time like there are now sometimes the only thing I could watch was PBS but do you think that PBS played cool shows during the day in the 90s no you know what they played from basically noon until 5 p.m this old house over and over and over again every single day and I would have to just sit there during my summer vacation and watch this old house because that was literally the only thing on and I am very bitter about it so I'm sorry I'll just never (laughs) I can never forgive them for doing that Speaking of this old house, fun fact, mm-hmm. it's broadcasted out of Stamford, Connecticut. Oh, funny. So they should have contacted the this old house guys <laughs> and been like, can you give us some information on Connecticut? Well, the dinner that Max prepared for Lorelai is Asobuco. Which, side note, every time I think of Asobuco, I immediately think of the dinner party episode of The Office. But that being said, Asobuco is a traditional Italian dish. It's veal braised with vegetables and white wine. Asobuco literally translates to bone with a hole. Now, Lorelai's outfit in this scene, I feel like we've finally moved away from 90s. Because this is very 2000s. We're talking glitter baby blue shirt with a glitter stripe down the middle. Very icy blue eyeshadow. We have officially hit 2000s fashions with Lorelai. Lorelai is trying to use her seduction skills to help with her daughter's paper, which is the opposite of cool, Lorelai. When I was watching it earlier, I was like, I felt that it was clear that she was like kidding around. But then I was still like, that's still kind of an inappropriate joke. Yeah, I mean, they've already crossed enough boundaries. I mean, haven't you done enough? Right. But they haven't because that's what we'll talk about in this episode. Yeah. This episode should be called Crossing Boundaries. <laughs> mm-hmm. 
Well, Lorelai's over at Max's bookcase, and she picks up Swan's Way by Marcel Proust and says that she has always wanted to read it, but never has. She's always wanted to be able to say, as Marcel Proust would say, but she really only knows what Michael Crichton would say. Marcel Proust was an early 20th century French author, best known for his huge seven-volume autobiographical novel, In Search of Lost Time, the first volume of which is is Swan's Way. Michael Crichton is a best-selling contemporary author and screenwriter known for his like action and thriller novels. Many have been turned into films. He's written films himself, such as Jurassic Park, Ginny. I would say you could accurately describe Michael Crichton as an airplane book author. Like Stephen King. Yeah, yeah. I think they're in the same kind of world. He's also written Westworld, which was turned into a fantastic series, and wrote the Mm -hmm. screenplay to my favorite Seymour Hoffman film, Twister. Oh my gosh, I have seen that movie. It is really good. Well, Max offers Lorelai to take the book Swan's Way so that she can read it. Lorelai says, okay, and sits down and starts reading it at his desk. I mean, uh, maybe she felt pressure. I don't know. That was just a weird thing. But Max very sexually leans over and says, I'd rather you not do that right now. And then they begin doing a very sexy thing that as an audience member, I find pretty creepy. I don't kink shame. I don't want to kink shame. Whatever you do in the privacy of your home, as long as it's between you and another consenting adult, uh-huh. fine. But I do not like kinks that involve the likeness or allusion to students or children. So right. pretending to be one of his students is so fucking creepy. I don't like it. Uh-huh. It should not be sexy to anybody. Correct. But that was definitely a thing of that time, though. Like that Britney Spears video where she's like a very sexy student. Society or like social acceptance. In the next scene, Lorelai quietly walks in the door very late at night. But Rory is still awake on the couch and they relay each other their evenings. You see a bag of what I think is pretzels next to a can of Diet Cola that looks very suspiciously just like a Diet Coke can. But you'll see Mm -hmm. it. It was so funny when I spotted it. It has the same font, the same colors, but instead of saying Coke, it says Cola. Here's a moment where they at least acknowledge openly their parent-daughter role reversal, where Lorelai actually calls Rory her mom. You go think about what you did. Oh, I will. Yeah. As Lorelai walks up to bed, Rory says, You look happy. I am, kid. Not for long! We cut over to Chilton. Max is reciting the poem, There's a Certain Slant of Light by Emily Dickinson, also known as number 258 in her collected work. He says that she writes with passion, even though she was a recluse. Well, in Love and War and Snow, he's mad that someone wrote a paper entitled Emily Dickinson, Get a Life. And in that episode, we discussed how that's the perfect title of Emily Dickinson paper because she did not have a life and she was a recluse, but he had like such a problem with it. So what's your deal, Max? Max has some 
thoughts. Also, that was in November, and we're supposed to be in January, right? Because it's after Christmas and school's back in session. Why the hell are we still talking about Emily Dickinson? I mean, great, talk about her as literature class, but for fucking months? That's a long time to spend on one poet. Unless he's bouncing around a lot. He may not be going, like, by writer by writer, but by, like, uh, different themes. And then, like, Emily Dickinson was in part of another theme. Madeline and Louise are drooling over his passionate poetry reading. Louise says that whoever Mr. Medina is dating is probably dumb because dumb women crave smart men. It's the Marilyn Monroe Arthur Miller syndrome. Marilyn Monroe was a famous Hollywood actress who was often typecasted as the, quote, dumb blonde character in her films, and she was also a noted bombshell sex icon, whereas Arthur Miller, not so much a bombshell sex icon, but was actually a playwright known for serious works such as The Crucible, which we've mentioned on this podcast before, and the play Death of a Salesman. Both plays were serious commentary on politics and society at the time. And publicly, they were seen as a mismatched couple, and in fact, their marriage only lasted six years. He couldn't handle her fame, which she was, like, extraordinarily, unbelievably famous. Paris is obviously annoyed and walks away from this conversation. Madeline Louise gossiped that it has officially come out in the society papers that her parents are in the middle of a nasty divorce. As they walk past Rory, they actually acknowledge her and say, Hey, what? We next cut over to Friday night dinner at the Gilmore Mansion, where they're eating very delicious tiny weird birds, or squab. Squab is actually domestic baby pigeon. Makes me sad just talking about it. I feel like Emily is dressed pretty casual in this scene for a Friday night dinner. It's very odd. But what the hell is Lorelai wearing? It's a little weird blue with circles or bubbles or pom-poms it's not cool yeah i did not like that outfit and emily says the color blue is very pleasant isn't it and so far in this episode we've seen lorelei wearing blue and she wears blue throughout the episode and i noticed that rory wears red throughout the episode and i have no idea if there's a reason why or if it means anything I just thought it was really interesting. Well, the Chilton newsletter came out today and Emily already knew all about it. And of course, Lorelai didn't. Parents Day is going to be at Chilton next Wednesday. And Emily is making Lorelai feel as bad as possible about it. I don't think it's fair that she's making her feel bad when I'm sure many of the mothers of a place like Chilton probably don't have a day job. So they probably were able to get it right away and read it right away. But Lorelai has a full-time manager job. At the school that I went to, we would have, you know, they would have to tell the students and their parents and to schedule it. Right. So, like, it's really weird to me if this is the only notice of Parents' Day is, like, a few days before. Right. That would that's that would be really inappropriate it's just hard for me to believe that a place like chilton would give less than a week's notice about something like parents day 
months, but we would be given like a physical calendar that had all important like vacation days and whatever in that calendar. I think most schools do that. That's pretty standard. So where's the Chilton calendar? Where's that? On the next scene, we're back at the Gilmore house. Lorelai is getting ready for her date with Max Medina. And Rory is trying to get out of there before he arrives because they're trying to keep some semblance of their boundaries intact. However, Lorelai is not being very helpful and she keeps depending on Rory for everything, including getting ready for her date. And of course, it all backfires because here's Mr. Medina. He's at the door. And Lorelai says, who shows up at eight o'clock for an eight o'clock date? Um, okay, let me just put this out there. If I had a date with someone and they showed up at 8.15 or 8.20 for an eight o'clock date, we wouldn't have a second date. Agreed. Agreed, hands down. Would not happen, especially if it was a first date. You know, if you're, you've been dating and you're a little bit late, you know, whatever. But then I would tell you like, oh, I'm running a little late. Yeah. I won't be there till 8.15. I don't show up on time to a party, to a group event, but I do show up on time for a one-on-one because otherwise you're waiting for me. And that's rude. Lorelai doesn't even try to rectify this boundary with Rory as she forces Rory to open the door. That is just ridiculous. You have clothes on. You can open the door, Lorelai, and say, hey, have a seat on the couch. I'm just going to be another five or ten minutes. I mean, she is so childish in the scene. It, it makes me crazy. There's a lot of issues with what's right. happening in this episode. But this is the moment where it's kind of like the dominoes. This is the moment where the dominoes kick over. And then Lorelai tries to blame literally every single person in the world but herself when she is the one who did it right here. Right. You open the door and then you get mad that the door was open. Ooh, yes. So good. She is putting both Max and Rory in a very uncomfortable and awkward and unnecessary position. I also fully blame Max, but that's a whole other conversation that we'll have in a minute. So Rory goes and opens the door for Max and he comes in and I absolutely hate this scene with Alexis Bledel and Scott Cohen in the doorway because Alexis is such a bad actress in this scene and it bothers me so much. It bothers me every time I watch it. I I cannot believe that the producers kept it in because of how bad it is. When she's like, you really need to go to the store. Oh, it's so cringy bad. Well, I think it's supposed to be that way because I think their aim was to like have it be really awkward. But it's not that it's awkward. It's that Alexis Bledel was bad at acting. I do like it when they both go into the living room because the camera shot is from like it's at the top of the staircase. And it's Uh the first time we really get to see an overview of the living room, which I think is really cool. We get to see kind of how it's laid out. We see the famous monkey lamp on the table. I just like it. Well, Max is at least trying to comfort Rory with this situation and make it a little bit more okay for her. But I really do wish that he had not encouraged her to call him Max. That is a boundary crossing. I guess I can kind of understand why he came up with the idea, but he should have known better to suggest it, especially before discussing it with Lorelai. He said, like, what are your plans for tonight? And then he can be like, you know, if you want to get going, I can just wait until Lorelai's ready. And then just let her go. He and Lorelai still don't even know, like, if they have a relationship, where their relationship is going. 
they've only seen each other for a few weeks. Two months, technically. Still, that, I think that's still early days. And Rory agrees with us. She also agrees that this is inappropriate to call Mr. Medina Max because it crosses a boundary line. So they decide to call each other by new names. Max says that he'll call Rory Rebecca. And Rory will call Mr. Medina Norman. It's the first name that came to mind because she just watched Psycho. But Rebecca is also the name of a Hitchcock movie. Was that intentional? Mm-hmm. I don't know. Well, now we are at Luke's diner. Rory is reading at the counter when Suki and Jackson storm in arguing. Jackson wants Suki to use his new vegetable invention, a zucchini tush. Suki says nobody wants a zucchini tush. They want the stuffed fried squash blossoms. And I have to agree with Suki on this. I'd rather have stuffed fried squash blossoms because those things are delicious. I've never had them, but they sound great. I wonder where you can find squash blossoms to stuff. I kind of hate to support Whole Foods these days, but Whole Foods is a place you can get them. Oh, okay. Try more local places. I don't know if you could get them now. Yeah, it's like later in the season? No, it'd be earlier. I've gotten them from the garden because I have squash back there. um, (laughs) I think probably one of my favorite Melissa McCarthy lines is, you want me to feed people a vegetable that's named after a butt? And then Rory going, it's too bad that bowling league didn't work out. At minute 16 and 29 seconds, if you look in the background behind Suki and Rory, you'll see a very tiny man. He's wearing a gray vest and a white apron. He brings ketchup to one of the tables. We never see him again. Does he work here? Who is he? Just then, Lorelai comes in with ice skates because her and Rory are going ice skating, or as they put it, Rory is Nancy Kerrigan and Lorelai is Tanya Harding. Now, for those out there who are too young to know what I'm talking about or have not seen the movie I, Tanya, I highly recommend it. I, Tanya was a great film. I think it's still available streaming on Hulu because believe me, if you were alive, you definitely know the story because everyone in the world knew the story. So basically, Nancy Kerrigan and Tanya Harding were champion and Olympic Olympic figure skaters, two of the best in the world. In 1994, Tanya Harding's ex-husband hired an attacker who clubbed Nancy Kerrigan's knees in order to try to prevent her from competing in the 1994 Olympics. But, especially at the time, the media put the entire and full blame only on Tanya Harding herself. She did plead guilty to being a part of the conspiracy, even though her reports now are that she didn't actually have any awareness of it. She says now that she was pressured into it because she wanted to avoid jail time. Regardless of what really happened, Tanya Harding was stripped of her championship titles and banned from U.S. figure skating for life. Tanya later remarried and became a professional boxer. And Nancy Kerrigan quickly recovered from the attack, was still able to compete that year, winning the silver Olympic medal. Fun fact, both Harding and Kerrigan were recently contestants on Dancing with the Stars. Oh, funny. The same season? Two seasons apart. 
Well, Luke comes over and he just cannot resist Lorelai no matter what. So he just straight up offers to clean and polish and sharpen and fix these old rusty skates. Seriously, can you two just... Yeah, I don't really know in what world you think that is just a friend to you. Mm-mm. Rory suggests inviting Max to come skating with them. And Lorelai now gets a shiver. All of a sudden, she's not feeling so cool about everything. Back at the Gilmore Girl house, Suki is putting the kettle on while Lorelai is soaking her poor feet. She really, really loves a coordinated event outfit. She went full ice skating for this outfit and I love it. The pigtails with the pink pom-poms, the fuzzy cuffs on this like black skating dress. But clearly her feet are pretty messed up from ice skating because unlike riding a bike, it's not like riding a bike. (laughs) Suki is also, I just want to say, super cute in this episode. In this episode, we've kind of moved away from her crazy 2000 braids. She's rocking this very cute little half up hairstyle. Her t-shirt says cuties on it and she's wearing this little jacket. I think she looks really cute in this episode. I know, I love her. Looking around at a few things in the kitchen, there's still some apples in the bowl on the table, which I think is weird for Lorelai. Also, in a shelf on the wall in the background, you see more of these collector salt and pepper shakers. I've mentioned this in the previous episode. She seems to have a collection of these cute, kitschy salt and pepper shakers that I love. I can't tell what all of them are, but from what I can see, there are radishes, corn, a Mr. and Mrs. Potato Head, chickens, a man and woman, and then the other ones I can't make out. That's really cute. And while they're chatting, Lorelai confesses to Suki that she's starting to think Max might not be the right guy for her. Two months, right on schedule. Suki is teasing her about cha cha chaing away from this good relationship, and in a steady stream, she cha cha chas, living la vida loca, shake bomb bomb, shake bomb bomb. These are all Ricky Martin songs, by the way. I danced to all of those in my middle school days. <laughs> Ricky Martin was a huge star back then. For those of you who are around, we all remember the Latin wave that came through and it was everywhere and it was all we were listening to. Lorelai is getting defensive and says, who made you the relationship expert? You haven't been in a relationship in years, which is a strike to the gut for Suki. Lorelai realizes right away what she's done. I've been there. I blurted up some nasty shit and immediately realized what a piece of shit I was being and what a piece of shit thing I did and said. Zero to jackass in 3.2 seconds. I've been there. I think we all have, but it happens. We're all only human. The good news is, is that singing Ricky Martin songs cheers Suki right back up. We cut back over to Chilton and see Tristan Dugray at his locker talking to a guy credited on IMDb as boy number two. 
Boy 2 is played by Simon Sherman. And Tristan is telling him that he heard Paris's dad actually has a second family in Paris. This is just to emphasize how bad and public Paris's parents' divorce is getting. That's when Rory walks by and Max Medina stops her and very inappropriately asks her if her mom is coming to Parents' Day. This definitely shouldn't be happening. It crosses all the boundaries that Lorelai specifically told him on day one, Max Medina, to not do this shit. Anyway, okay, I'm not even there to my rant yet, and I'm already getting mad. Dude, if you haven't heard from the woman that you've been dating for a while, you don't ask her daughter about it. At school, where you work, and she is your student. That is not okay. Back at the Gilmore Girls' house, clearly both of them lost the medical alphabet game, or maybe it's because they got distracted by the puppies, because they're both at the refrigerator cleaning it out. Lorelai is wearing some 2000 blue camo, again with the blue, but she's holding up a pepperoni pizza that could be from Tuesday or a Tuesday in the not-so-distant past. You look on the side of the box, the box says hot stuff on it. Rory gossips with her mom about Paris's divorce. It's not the Rick James incident, but Hugh Grant should be feeling pretty good about himself. The Rick James incident, referring to Rick James, the popular R&B and funk singer known for classics like Super Freak, who, by the way, several times, multiple times, kidnapped and sexually assaulted women, but of course only spent a few years in prison for it. Multiple times. And then there's Hugh Grant. So again, a lot of us who grew up in the 90s know this story. In 1995, Hugh Grant was married to Elizabeth Hurley. So we were shocked as a nation when beloved actor Hugh Grant was arrested for picking up an L.A. sex worker named Divine Brown. It was super public, but unlike most people, Hugh Grant immediately came out and said, I'm sorry, what I did was not cool. I take full responsibility for what happened and what I did. We forgave him pretty quickly, and I don't know if it was because he actually owed up to what he did or if it's because he was Hugh Grant and we just let him do whatever he wants. I personally don't find sex work abhorrent while I obviously find, you know, like kidnapping and abuse abhorrent. So Hugh Grant made some bad choices and needs to work on some issues, but I don't think he's like a terrible person. I hope that listeners out there don't think that I'm saying that about Hugh Grant because he picked up a sex worker. It's because he picked up a sex worker behind his wife's back. Yeah, infidelity is not a party. Well, and she was, at the time, gorgeous, very famous model and actress who was considered, like, one of the most beautiful women in the world. So I think there was also a lot of, like, you have the most beautiful woman in the world at home. I am not a, a clinician, but I think that would speak to sex addiction in my book. Hopefully he got some help. I don't know. I have no idea. They didn't divorce right away. They divorced five years later. So I don't know. Rory also says that things seem to be a little different at school and that Madeline and Louise actually said hello to her. Not here's Johnny hello, but friendly hello. Wow, you're the new Heather. Here's Johnny is a reference from The Shining which mm-hmm. I just found out was actually a reference to Ed McMahon on Johnny Carson. 
And The New Heather is a reference to the movie The Heathers, which is a film about high school cliques and centers around the most popular clique, The Three Heathers. Great 80s noir film. Highly recommend. (laughs) Lorelai is chewing on old fries before she throws them away and realizes that, oh, this is the old pizza. The one in here is the more recent pizza. And to prevent Lorelai from eating pizza out of the garbage, Rory calls her Oscar. Whereas Lorelai responds with Felix. Oscar and Felix is in reference to the odd couple. Now, The Odd Couple was originally a Broadway play, which was turned into a film starring Walter Matthau and Jack Lemmon, and then was a popular TV show. If I had to wager a guess, I would guess that the Gilmore Girls would love the TV show. What do you think? I think the movie and the TV show. Oh, I'm sure they saw both. I've never seen the TV show. I've only seen the film. I have seen both. Well, let's talk about what we can see in the Gilmore Girls fridge. There is pickles, mayo, salad dressing, coffee creamer, two cans of Ready Whip, one with a blue cap and one with a red cap, which means they got original and fat free. And they have two jugs of orange juice and a jug of Sunny D. Can we please talk about the food waste? I mean, that's what they're known for. Which, to be fair, you gotta remember, <laughs> this is from 2000. So, for those of you who only have memories as far back as the mid to late 2000s, I... I'm here to let you in on the fact that we actually used to have a pretty good economy. And that was during the Clinton administration when our economy was like hella good. And we had to do things like buy Sunny Delight and orange juice. But no longer because our economy is now jack shit. Rory asked Lorelai how Swan's Way is going, as in the book that Max gave her early in the episode. Lorelai says, I finished the first sentence. Proust is famous for having very long sentences and very dense paragraphs. So because of that, I always assumed that's what Lorelai was referring to. However, the first sentence of Swan's Way is, for a long time, I used to go to bed early. That's it. I'm assuming she's making a reference into his notoriety for doing that. However, this is not accurate. It's not factually accurate. She could have only read the first sentence, you know, then she wrote a really short sentence. (laughs) Lorelai later tells Max that she read the first 20 pages, which is another reference to how long and dense his sentence and paragraphs are. Because she says, well, I don't want to read a book where the first sentence is 20 pages. That's not true. But what is true is that the paragraph itself actually lasts several pages. And I think that's what she's referring to. However, it's still not accurate. 
Lorelai says she's just way too busy to read it right now, so if she could give it back to Max tomorrow, she'd appreciate it. Roy reminds her that tomorrow is Parents' Day, and she's supposed to be going. Of course, we as the audience are slowly figuring out why Lorelai is trying to avoid Max, because she knows she has to break up with him, even though she doesn't want to, because she's blah, 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 blah. But she has not confessed this to anyone yet, so she's trying to avoid the subject with Rory. And now she says she can't make Parents' Day because of the thing at the end. You know, the thing at the end, the thing with the flags and the little men and the peanuts. Now Lorelai is starting to be a bee about the whole thing. And Rory is seeing right through it. She knows that something is going on because Rory, unlike Lorelai, has a much firmer grasp on reality, as Luke says sometimes. She is making up stories. She's lying. It wasn't affecting Rory as much as it was you affecting Rory. The only thing I want to add is the fact that Lorelai specifically told Max that this is what she wanted to avoid. So I do give Lorelai in a little bit of space here simply because she wanted to prevent this from happening because at the very least, she thought she would not be able to handle it because of her own immaturity and she did not want her daughter to have to be involved or affected. And she told Max that from the beginning. And Max pressured her and pressured her and pressured her because he knew she was attracted to him. She told him over and over again, this is my boundary. Please don't cross it. This is my boundary. Please don't cross it. And Max continually pressured her into letting him cross the boundary. And he continually crossed the boundary. I believe that he is more at fault than she is for the inappropriateness just because it's not his kid. But also, like, in this moment with this conversation, Rory has to be the 16-year-old being like, no, I'm not going to do that. And she has to set the boundary that Lorelai should be setting. And Lorelai is also not doing what I think would be a responsible parent's action, which is sitting down and saying, he should not have spoken to you about us. And, you know, I'm very sorry that he did that. I'm going to speak to him about that. They're very open. They, between the two of them they don't have a lot of boundaries so once it's happening like make better choices of how you deal with it Rory I think does handle this situation exactly how I would expect her to because again she is the one who is trying to throw that truth right in Lorelai's face but she also acts like a teenager because she is one and she says fine do whatever you want And she goes into her room and slams the door, which she has the full right to do because she is, again, 16. And, of course, Lorelai's response is to eat her feelings with trash pizza. In the next scene, we are at Chilton, and it is officially Parents' Day. Rory is walking through the hall. Lorelai is trying to keep up behind her. You can tell they're still pretty mad at each other, or at least Rory is mad at Lorelai. Lorelai looks super cute here. I love her curled hair with the barrettes, and I love that turtleneck on her. It's actually red this uh-huh. time. Just pointing that out, whereas Rory is wearing blue. I'm just saying. She's still wearing that very unfortunate 90s leather jacket that is not properly tailored to her shape. But other than that, I think she looks hella good. I love her trousers, too. Those are cute. 
They walk over to Rory's locker so she can drop her stuff off, and they see Paris with her mother in the hallway arguing because Paris's mother is a huge bee. Mama Geller is embarrassed because everyone is talking about her divorce, and she clearly doesn't care that much about Paris, which we do learn throughout this show. She was very absent to Paris growing up. Paris's mom is played by Anne Gillespie, she was an active actress from 1981 until 2009, was in lots of well-known shows such as Happy Days and Star Trek, Deep Space Nine, and on Beverly Hills 90210 where she played Jackie Taylor, aka Kelly's mom. She retired from acting and became an Episcopal priest. Fun fact. Mm-hmm. Well, Mama Geller tells Paris that she wants to leave early and Paris is begging her to stay. And instead, Mama Geller publicly asks Paris whether or not she's been using that cleaner that Dr. Guattari is prescribed to her. You have terrible skin, daughter. The doctor prescribed that cleanser for a reason to cleanse. God damn, what a fucking bitch. And your second sealer stick I ordered. Yeah, and then just straight up walks away and yells in the hallway, use that cover stick. Oh my God, what a bitch. A piece of the puzzle of how Paris got to be how she is, right? The good news is that it seems to have quickly patched things up between Lorelai and Rory. We also get a brief glimpse into Rory's locker. Remember in the first episode, she had the weirdest damn locker at Stars Hollow High. She had a picture of a dog wearing sunglasses and a picture of the desert. Well, guess what? Not only is there a lot more going on in her Chilton locker, but there is still a dog wearing sunglasses. That's right. On top of that, there's also what looks like the front of a tour guide for the country of Hungary, a picture of a pair of black boots floating over a tropical scene, a dog sitting in a leather chair, baby spice that's been circled and crossed out in reference to the Spice Girls, which I'm surprised Rory even has an opinion about. That doesn't seem like her genre. Rory, who are you? (laughs) What is happening right now? Yeah. Well, guess what? The first class they get to go to together is English Lit with Mr. Medina. So they're in Mr. Medina's class and he's holding up a book and talking about their reading and creative writing assignments coming up. He says one of the biggest inspirations of working writers can be the writings of others. He mentions Walt Whitman, Red Homer, Dante and Shakespeare. And Edna O'Brien once said, every writer should read some Proust every day. We'll talk about those later. Lorelai squirms at the mention of Proust's Swan's Way, but she's saved by the bell, at least for a very small moment. The class papers on Walt Women will be due tomorrow. I'm glad they finally moved on from Emily Dickinson, but... Lorelai stays behind because she has to get her business taken care of. Which, by the way, in real life, he would have another class of students coming in right then. So Rory and all of her classmates in that class go to a different class, and then a whole other group of students come in. We're not here for continuity, Jenny. (laughs) I'm here for continuity, and I demand it, damn it! There's also a poster behind Lorelai that has an anagram that says sonnets with Keats, Couplet, Dante, Italian, English, 14 lines, and Shakespeare, which made me laugh. When you look at it, it's so cheesy. I love it. 
Well, Max and Lorelai are being very cordial. Lorelai wants to give him back his copy of Swan's Way. She says she liked it, but she got busy, even though in a second, again, she says the 20 pages, one sentence thing, which of course we know is a slight exaggeration, just to comment on how long Marcel Proust's sentences and paragraphs are. Max also sees straight through this bullshit, just like Rory. He knows what's up and he wants the truth. Lorelai says she needs space. Max says he wants as little space as possible. A hundred clowns crammed into a Volkswagen. That's how little space he wants. That's in reference to a very popular circus trope. It was a very popular circus and clown gag. Fun fact, the record number of people that fit into a small car was 28 people in a mini coupe. Oh my god, how is that even possible? I don't know. I think they were gymnasts. I, I do I do think I read that they were gymnasts, so they must have been able yeah, they to... they must have been, like, contortionists. <laughs> yeah. But that's so, like, space-wise. How is that even possible? They're using every, you know, little tiny inch. Um, she She's not handling this right, but he also is not respecting what she's asking for. She's asking for space and for time and to sort of, like, give some distance between them. And he is, you know, refusing to accept his own property back that she's trying to give him. And also basically saying, like, well, you want space, but I don't. That's what I'm saying, is that he does not listen to Lorelai. He has right. never respected her boundaries He has never respected her point of view. He wants what Max wants. And that's shitty. One thing I also don't like is he goes, I can tell you miss me. You're missing me right now. And then I'm like, how do you know? I think it's true that she does want to keep dating him, but is just getting freaked out about stuff with Rory. Of course, instead of, you know, be a responsible adult and say, well, let's schedule some time outside of school to talk about this. Can we talk about it further at this time? I'll take my book back, though, and thank you. Right. other students coming in. He, um... <laughs> Look, I've said this before, and I'll say it again. When people tell you their boundaries and what their boundaries are, respect their goddamn boundaries. And of course, the hormones and the feelings kick in, which is exactly what Lorelai was afraid of. And what happens next? Smooch, smooch, smooch. It all culminates in this sexual tension and they kiss a very major, hot, sexy kiss right there in the classroom. And unfortunately, it happens right as Paris walks up to the door. Paris sees everything and wastes no time in spreading it to every person in the cafeteria. Rory's mom was kissing Mr. Medina. Rory is in the dining hall reading new poems by Emily Dickinson, a collection by William Schur. When Paris comes over to let Rory know that everybody knows... Also, was Max Medina the first class of the day or did Lorelai just come to the school late? Because how on earth is it already lunchtime? That was also my question when I was watching. And I was like, wait, wasn't this the first class? There are definitely like two or three other classes before you have lunch. We just have to assume that Lorelai came later. I don't know. She must have had to work and then came when she could. 
Also, there are some large portraits in the cafeteria dining hall, and I'm interested in knowing who these portraits are of. So if anybody out there recognizes these portraits, I'd love to know. Lorelai comes in hoping that Rory saved her some jello, but Rory has already heard the news and she is pissed. Rory is trying to get away from Lorelai. They argue in the stairwell. Lorelai admits that she broke the boundary rules. This is what Lorelai was talking about when they went to the cafe the first time after the bake sale. I'm telling you, it was mm-hmm. day one. And I'm just, I'm sorry, I'm on, I'm on. I, Lorelai was able to make her own decisions. But again, I also want to remind everybody that it probably would not have happened if she had let Rory go to Lane's and Lorelai had opened the goddamn door. Anyway, cutting over to Friday night dinner at the Gilmore Mansion. So we know that this is at least two days after Parents' Day. Plenty of time for Emily to hear all about it. But damn, Lorelai looks good here. I love that look and makeup on her. Emily also looks smoking. She's wearing that red cardigan set with the red and green plaid skirt and pearls. Everyone looks hot. Emily wants to talk to Lorelai alone so she can rip into her about what happened on Parents' Day. Everyone knows she was kissing Mr. Medina. How did she find out? Well, duh, we already know she was friends with Mr. Charleston and his wife, Biddy Charleston. And of course, we'll hear even more on that in the future. Of course, because of that, Emily was going to find out if we learned anything from parents' family's divorce. We know that all these rich bitches love a gossip and everybody knows everybody's shit. The part about it that I cannot believe is that Emily didn't find out that day and waited two days to confront Lorelai about it. That's that's literally the only part of that story that's hard for me to believe. You know, Biddy Charleston may have been a little busy and hadn't been able to tell Emily Gilmore quite as quickly as she normally would have. I don't know. If it was about someone's daughter, wouldn't you tell them that day? Well, you might hesitate because you'd be like, oh, I don't want to. You might hesitate. (laughs) I don't think Biddy Charleston Well, I certainly relate to Lorelai in this scene, although I do think she made a huge mistake as we've discussed. And of course, Mm -hmm. so the one place that she should get some sort of comfort and understanding from is her mother. But of course, she gets the exact opposite of comfort and understanding. And boy, do I relate to that. Back at Chilton. So it's got to be at least Monday now, we assume. The Chilton Heathers, a.k.a. Paris Louise and Madeline, are passing by Rory talking about how, man, it must be lucky to have your teacher sleeping with your parent. Well, that is enough for Rory. She's done. She's not taking it anymore. She gets up and she slams it right in Paris's face. I get that you don't care about me, but you did this to Mr. Medina too, you piece of shit. And my favorite part of this conversation is when Paris has finally realized what she did. She receives it and remarks, I do like Mr. Medina. And Rory says, well, I would take some dance classes because the way you express yourself needs a little work. Oh, that's one of my favorite lines in like, the entire show. Right? It's so good. Rory uses this moment of Paris self-realization to mm. kind of smooth things over between her and Paris. And she kind of does it a little bit here. There's this little tiny little glimmer of appreciation there. It's not a lot, 
that it's a stepping stone. And we've seen these little tiny little pieces of glitter in previous episodes and we're getting there. But okay, we are here, folks. This is an important scene because we cut over to the Independence Inn and Suki is wearing this super cute hot pink chef's robes. Jackson Belleville comes in with his goofy self wearing overalls over what is clearly some sort of deer shirt. He has all the squash blossoms she could ever desire. Hurrah! Mediocrity wins again. And with that, Suki's heart is all aflutter and she finally asks Jackson out on a date. Yay! Unfortunately, that happy moment passes because we're not done yet, folks. We're back at that coffee shop, the same coffee shop that Max and Lorelai had their relationship discussion the first time. Just because I'm attracted to you doesn't mean we should date. I'm attracted to pie doesn't mean I should date pie. You should listen to her, Max. We've had a lot of discussion about these boundary issues and the parts of it that were Max's fault and the parts of it that were Lorelai's fault. But mm-hmm. this is the part where I do not give any leeway to Max at all. Because what has he been... Oh my God, day one, Ginny. Day one. Max has been pressuring her. He has been pressuring her since the bake sale. And even in the previous scene, she tried to walk away and he pressured her. But here we go. Lorelai sits down. She finally confesses exactly how she's been feeling to Max. Exactly what has been driving her to this insanity. She's come to terms with her feelings. She wants to lay it all out and be honest with him. She's being vulnerable. Mm -hmm. She's saying, you know what? You were right. I was pushing you away. And this is why I got scared. I care about you. It's why I freaked out. She also admits that she's the one that kicked up that public kiss to NC-17, which is a reference to a movie rating that does not allow children. Of course, because Max Medina is the fuckboy that Max Medina is, the minute it started to get serious and his career was on the line, It came before Lorelai, even though it was his fault, even though she tried to walk away, even though this is what she warned him about in the first place. He ignored her. He crossed it. He didn't listen. He put her in that position. He does not care about the consequences until it affects him directly like a true American. (laughs) This is the reason why I'm so mad. The minute he has to put in any of the work, he's out. He didn't care when it affected Lorelai. He didn't care when it affected Rory, a 16-year-old mm-hmm. girl. He only cares about Max. He only cares about Max Medina. I don't think that's necessarily true. I just think he didn't understand the need for them to stop seeing each other when they liked each other. I think he just honestly like did not see or understand how important that was or like the ways in which, you know, his actions and their actions as dating each other were, you know, like really affecting the dynamic of Lorelai and Rory as their own little family. Like he just didn't get it. 
The reason why I can't agree with that line of thinking is because at no point does Max confess that he has realized how it affects Rory. He only talks about how it affected his career and his future at Chilton. They both agree they have to take a break. Rather, Max says it and Lorelai says okay. We're back at home at the Gilmore house. Rory walks in the door. She calls for her mom. She runs upstairs and Lorelai is crying in bed. Wearing blue. Oh, to match her mood. Poor thing. Oh, breakups are the worst. And I think that's such an interesting ending because we see that it really does affect Lorelai in a major way. I just think it's really interesting how they played it out in this episode because it's exactly what Lorelai wanted to do. But it's that thing where if you have control of it, it won't be as bad. But once you kind of let it go and then it happened to you. Mm-hmm. I remember a couple of years ago, I was going to quit my job because they were being shitty. I had a job offer and I decided to not take it because I, I wanted to you know stay at my job to see if I could get a better one and then literally two weeks later they fired so it was that much more devastating to be like oh I could have quit and shoved it in their faces like you missed that opportunity to be in control of your own experience yeah and I think that that was a part of it too Oh, absolutely. I think it sucks to be rejected by someone you really, really like, but then it all sucks to be rejected by someone that you were going to reject. Right? You're like, no, damn it, I'm rejecting you. Do, 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 do. The Arts and Entertainment Shelf is where we list the reference to all the movies, books, TV, and music referenced in each episode. In this episode, believe it or not, there is no music actually in this episode, which is pretty rare for Gilmore Girls. So the only music Mm -hmm. reference that we really have is Ricky Martin and the songs Live in La Vida Loca and Shake Your Bon Bon. Shake your bon bon, shake your bon bon. One thing I'll say about Ricky Martin is, have you seen the series, The Assassination of Gianni Versace? It's on my list. I haven't seen it yet. I think you'll really like it. It's very true crimey. And it's just really good. I mean, the cast is just like chef's kiss. But Ricky Martin is in it. He plays Versace's partner. And he's so good in it. Oh my god, this just climbed to the top of my list. Moving on, the movies referenced in this episode are Psycho, Heathers, The Shining, The Omen, The Odd Couple, and, of course, Paris is Burning. You mentioned the Heathers, and I know you've seen The Odd Couple, and of course I know you've seen Paris is Burning because we discussed that as well. Mm -hmm. What about... Psycho, The Shining, and The Omen. The Shining I've never seen. It's too scary. I can't, I won't watch it. I have seen Psycho. It was also very scary. And The Omen, another scary movie. I'm never going to watch that. You couldn't, you couldn't pay me to watch The Omen. You might get me to watch The Shining because it is like a classic, but it would need to be daytime and way before I go to bed. This is actually the second time that The Shining has been brought up. So I have talked about this. So I do really like The Shining. I actually am the same way. It's really hard for me to watch scary movies. So I will watch The Shining once a year if it's during the day and I'm not alone in the house. Normally I can't watch scary movies at all. And what's funny is that I have also seen Psycho and The Omen and the sequels to The Omen. 
But that was when I was younger and scary movies weren't a thing for me yet. That wasn't something that developed until I was college age where I realized I couldn't watch scary movies anymore. I want to say when I was in older elementary or junior high age is when I watched the Omen movies. Oh my gosh. That's the reason why I can't watch movies now like that. Because when I was young, I watched all of those scary movies. I watched all of the scary movies from the 80s and 90s. And now I can't watch scary movies ever again because I think that they like trigger something in my brain and other people feel the exact opposite other people grew up watching scary movies so now they don't mean anything to them but not me that is not how i yeah. feel <laughs> i can't be in the same room with a doll because i watched chucky when i was five and i can't leave the light on in my closet because of poltergeist and i'm 35 years old i have seen the odd couple i used to love walter Matthau and jack lemon and it's not that i don't anymore i mean like when i was in high school i was on a walter Matthau and jack lemon kick all of their movies from the 60s from the 80s and from the 90s i was just like yes give it to me right now i like banter right so that's good banter so i was into that yeah they really played off each other i've seen the heathers many times i i wouldn't call it a movie that i like I think it's a movie I would want everyone to see, but I don't think it's a good movie. I think it's a very problematic movie. I know that that movie is a dark comedy and it's supposed to bring up all of the issues, but I think there are issues within the movie that aren't talked about when having those conversations. It's definitely not for me a feel-good movie. The reason that I enjoy it when I watch it is because it's just, to me, it's just like this like really ridiculous kind of insane movie, like quirky lines and characters like, oh my God, I just killed my best friend or your worst enemy. Same difference. <laughs> it's like, there's just a lot of gray lines or, oh, I better motor if I'm going to make it to the funeral. Like I quote it all the time. I'd say that if you've never seen the Heathers, Definitely know what you're going into before you watch it because it can it can be triggering, I think, to some people. So definitely know what you're getting into before you watch it. But it's definitely something I think that we should watch because it's in the zeitgeist and then you never have to watch it again. The TV referenced in this episode is This Old House and The Odd Couple. And The Odd Couple TV show was not Walter Matthau. No. The Odd Couple TV show was a sitcom from that ran from 1970 to 1975 and was not Walter Matthau and Jack Lemmon, but actually starred Jack Klugman and Tony Randall. Yeah, Tony Randall, who is terrific. I watched The Odd Couple, the TV show, on Nick at Night. Well, last but not least, the book's and authors referenced in this episode are Swan's Way by Marcel Proust, Emily Dickinson, and her poem, There's a Certain Slant of Light, or poem number 258, Michael Crichton, Walt Whitman, Homer, Dante, and Edna O'Brien. So Jenny, I know we've vaguely discussed some of these throughout the episode but do you have any favorites we didn't even really talk about our personal relationships with marcel proust or swan's way we just kind of talked about the book itself so uh, how do you feel about this list well i should say i've never read proust um i've never tried to read swan's way i have heard that it is as we talked about and as lorelei exaggerated about that it's very dense 
So then I have always been, it didn't sound like a fun read, mm-hmm. so I've always been a little hesitant. Emily Dickinson I've always liked, but I've, you know, I've never been someone who would like sit down and read a book of poetry. I would just kind of like hear about poems. I, of course, know of Walt Whitman. I know his work. He's an incredible poet, but I don't know poetry super well. What about Edna O'Brien? I literally have no idea who that is. Edna O'Brien is an Irish author, and she was regarded as changing the nature of Irish literature. Some of her novels are The Country Girls and The Wild Decembers. Her books dealt with girl issues, sexuality, social issues, and post-war Ireland. And uh, some of her books were burned and banned. So she was probably a cool person. And Homer and Dante. Oh, Dante and Homer I know of. I have never read, um, I mean, Dante is most famous for the Inferno. And, you know, Homer is most well known for the Odyssey, which I have on my bookshelf, but I haven't read it yet. Homer, I've read. I've read the the Odyssey. I read the Odyssey and the Iliad. I've read the Odyssey several times because I read it in high school. And then I read it. I took a Greek literature class in college. So I've read it a few times. Dante I did read. I read Dante's Inferno. In the same class, I read Homer, my senior English class. We had to write diary journals every day, and I hated it. Oh, like 50% of my journals were about how much I hated writing daily journals. <laughs> to kind of <laughs> to get around having to do that, this is busy work, and there's nothing that annoys me more than busy work because I'm not learning oh, anything. My teacher was cool enough to kind of understand this and see it and accepted about me. And since he knew that I was an advanced reader or I had these other interests. So he had a special cupboard and it was locked because it had very advanced books that most kids could not read. And it was from his personal library. So he didn't just give it to any of his students. Dante's Inferno was one of them. And so he would let me take books out of this cupboard in replacement of having to do those dumbass daily journals. So as long as I was reading all these like college level books, he, yeah. he kind of let me get away with it. So that's why I read Dante's I don't think it was anything. I was like, okay, <laughs> didn't really affect me. Yeah. So you were like, it's fine. Yeah. I also agree with you about Marcel Proust and Swan's Way slash In Search of Lost Time. I'm just not interested. I'm not someone who's gonna read something just because it's intellectual and I know what it's about and I'm I'm not interested. I'll also admit that although I enjoy quite a few of Michael Crichton's movies and TV series, I've never read his books. Yeah, me neither. You know what I just realized is that we forgot to mention Shakespeare. We've also talked about, we had an entire episode where we talked about Shakespeare, you and I. Right. So maybe we're, we're Shakespeare'd out, okay? Jenny and I are both very familiar with Shakespeare. Let's just leave it at that. (laughs) Listen to that episode. Go back, listen to that episode. Listen to the Deer Hunters and you'll hear all about our Shakespeare experience. But last on this list is Walt Whitman. And I do enjoy Walt Whitman. I don't know if I've read any Emily Dickinson. If I have, it's not much. And if I did, I obviously didn't care about it enough to remember it because I also just don't care about poetry. I just don't. But I do like Walt Whitman. I have Leaves of Grass. I've read it several times because Leaves of Grass has probably my favorite quote, which is, do I contradict myself? 
Very well, then, I contradict myself. I am large. I contain multitudes. I like, I like that idea of I contain multitudes. It's a real, it's a real statement about being hypocritical is that you, you can believe many things that in different times of your life and can contradict yourself. Mm. That. Interesting because that's not how I interpret that line. I don't even think about it as hypocritical. I think about it as just being a human being. And how yeah. you can have different feelings out in the same thing. We have layers and we have nuances and we have logic, but we also have heart. So that is it for us. Jenny. I want to thank you again for being on my podcast with me. Uh, thank you so much. I hope everyone out there has enjoyed the show and catch us next time when we talk about episode 12, Double Date. Bye. Thank you for having me. Bye-bye. This has been Welcome to Stars Hollow, the podcast. For more episodes, make sure to subscribe to Spotify, iTunes, Google Podcasts, or wherever you find your favorite podcasts. For extra fun, find us on Instagram at, at Stars Hollow Pod. Oh, my God. I know Darren Chris from Glee. I know Darren Chris from the Harry Potter musical when he went to Michigan State. Oh my gosh. Yeah, he... he... Oh, this is a pro Darren Chris podcast. <laughs> this is a very pro Darren... Darren Chris, if you're out there, uh, feel free to come on my podcast anytime.